Thanks for your presentation, John. It was very uh, informative. Hello? Um, my question is uh, related to money, which is probably not a good thing to bring up here when you're talking about dying, but uh, where does the AMA and uh, medical or healthcare industry stand on this? Do you have any support? I can't imagine you do, but is there any support from the healthcare industry to to make this uh, uh, medically assisted dying happen? Thanks, uh, Knut. <clears throat> to be honest, um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't. I've, I've read a lot of. Uh, I've read much of the presentations in the um, um, uh, BC court case, and I haven't seen any. Um, briefs there submitted by medical associations uh, and I don't know what the Alberta Medical Association's um, uh, stance is on this. this. Um, is there a doctor in the house? Perfect. Could you, uh, could you speak to that, Eric, please? My name is Eric Williams. I'm a retired GP in the, in the city here, having worked here for 35 years. Um, the, there is no official position of the Alberta Medical Association on uh, the right to die. What there is is a majority of doctors who think that, that the patients should have a right to die. The real uh, thing that sticks in the gullet of the doctors, however, is that uh, the expectation of ordinary people that the doctors are prepared to uh, implement this procedure. Um, doctors would far rather that there be a, an extension of uh, undertaking and, and cremation uh, services and that, that it should be done by a non-medical person. The, the reason really is that the medical profession is dedicated to keeping people alive and not to making them die. And there is a, a subtle difference between uh, taking care of somebody while they are dying and um, actually putting them to death. And uh, so, okay. the, 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 so we, we don't want to blur that any more than it is. It, <coughs> it lives in fairly happy situation at the present time whereby the doctors do have adequate analgesia and anesthesia of various sorts that they can make life very much more comfortable if they're prepared to give uh, time, sympathy, uh, and understanding to the problems. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because obviously the doctors in Oregon and Montana and Washington and <clears throat> the uh, four countries I mentioned in Europe, obviously they're on side with this. Um, and the fellow who's involved with the, um, uh, the case in British Columbia, as I mentioned, there's a doctor who's, as one of the plaintiffs there who thinks that it's, it's his professional duty uh, to, pro to provide this service. So obviously it's a very independent um, uh, or individual choice by various doctors. Question. 
My name is Cheryl Bradley, and I noticed in the examples you give of jurisdictions that currently do have assisted dying uh, allow it, uh, some are sort of states in the U.S., and then some are nations, as in um, Europe. In Canada, would it require change in federal law, or can provinces make uh, decisions to implement that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's a moot point too. Um, it's covered under the uh, under the present time. It's an offence under the criminal code <clears throat> to help somebody commit suicide. So that's a federal law. Now, if the result of the BC case is to strike down that law, then then there's a vacuum, and then I can see federal lawmakers, uh, you know, the the politicians and the lawyers getting together and and choosing the, the regulations and the procedures that they want to use. Um, so that would be on a federal level. The interesting thing um, is, and I'll, I, I just got this this morning um, from uh, this organization I was talking about, Dying with Dignity. Um, they have done a summary of the BC Civil Liberties arguments in the case in... Um, in Vancouver, and they're saying that under Section 7, <clears throat> the first argument is made on the... Con All right, the first argument is made under the Constitution Act of 1867, which states that the regulation and delivery of health services, the practice of medicine, and regulation of patient-physician relationships are provincial matters. British Columbia Civil Liberties Association argues that the end-of-life treatment for individuals who are grievously or irredeemably ill falls under these categories and hence should be provincially regulated as a health matter rather than federally regulated as a criminal matter. So it's a, it's a toss-up. I would, I mean, personally, I would like to see it be regarded as a health matter and therefore subject to provincial legislation. But then the, then you get complications about, you know, what's Newfoundland going to do by comparison to Alberta? So, um, but if, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the case now because our health is, is controlled by the provinces. So if it's a health matter, it'll be a provincial matter. <clears throat> yes, <clears throat> Terry Schelling. Thank you, John, for your presentation. You've obviously engaged us uh, very effectively. Um, it was identified at our table that this can be a very slippery slope, and uh, for some of us, uh, we're not quite sure where the line is, and uh, that's certainly true for me personally. I, I find myself quite ambivalent about the conversation. Um, <clears throat> I'd be curious where either you stand or where your organization stands, depending on uh, where you feel most comfortable responding. But where would you put the boundaries? I heard you implying that the Oregon, um, the Oregon um, procedure was a more restrictive than, than you would prefer, but I, I may have misread you, uh, in which they say you have to be dying within six months in order to qualify. Um, where would you, can you help us where you would draw the boundaries between what qualifies and what um, would not? 
what what qualifies in the from the point of view of um, to, to to be valid as uh, doctor assisted suicide, for example. That's well, first first of all, I think the regulations have to be um, uh, crafted in a way that that everybody understands them, obviously. But there should be restrictions. Obviously, you don't want 14-year-olds who had a you know, bad affair with their girlfriend um, asking for this. <clears throat> so they should be adults. Uh, they should be certified to be mentally um, uh, competent to make those decisions. Um, I think the slippery slope argument is, is usually aimed at the weak and the vulnerable. And I think that uh, providing the regulations are tight enough, uh, and the, the ones that I know about are uh, Oregon and, um, and the Dignitas one in Switzerland, um, they're very strict on the, on the type of, on the, on the people that uh, um, they provide this service to. Oregon, as I say, was, has been um, uh, using this method for the last 14 years and, it, and it's been analyzed to death. And if, if there was a slippery slope, I think what you would see is that a group of people would be prevalent within the population. So they could be you know, old people or, or women or whatever. Um, there was an analysis done of the, of the uh, results in, in Oregon by the University of uh, Utah, <clears throat> and it was published in the um, Journal of Medical Ethics in, uh, in Britain, which is a peer-reviewed journal. And it found that there were, no, there were, there were two sort of uh, spikes in the population of the, of the people who took advantage of this over, um, I don't think it was the 14 years, I think it was the first 10 years. And the two spikes were, were uh, well, they, they analyzed it from the point of view of age, uh, sex, or, or gender, I guess, um, sexual orientation, uh, and education were, were some of the, uh, were some of the uh, criteria that they were looking at. And the two spikes that occurred were gay men, and this was at the tail end of the sort of the AIDS epidemic in Oregon. And uh, the other prevalent uh, factor uh, were people who who were male and well educated, and maybe therefore um, uh, of higher net worth than the than the uh, than the rest of the population. So I th I don't think the slippery slope argument holds up, providing you have proper regulations. In uh, in Dignitas, for instance, the organisation in in Switzerland. Once you've gone through all the exercises and, you, and you've drunk the potion and, and you're dead, um, the first thing that happens is that the uh, representative from Dignitas phones the cops and the police come over and the coroner comes over and the public prosecutor come over and before anybody moves. So everybody's still in the room, the body's still there, uh, the family's still there, the representatives of Dignitas are still there. And then <clears throat> these people... Uh, ask them questions and make sure that everything was done according to Hoyle and they check their records, check their written records of, it, of the interviews that they had with the patient. So it's very transparent and, it, and it's, in my opinion, uh, very well regulated. Yes, my name is Rosemary Fodder. Uh, first off, John, I'd like to salute you for having the courage to bring this forth to the 
larger community. But my concern has to do with the utilitarian ethic that could be precipitated by the slippery slope. And I, what I'm saying is the agony, pain, and suffering that occurs with chronic diseases and some very uh, agonizing diseases, etc. what's the difference with a premature child who's born? And with the technology that we have, we can keep them alive, but they're never 100%. So the agony that you experience with a chronic disease and you wish to die and have the power thereof to do it, what about these premature babies who, who really are the responsibility of their parents whose life could be measured in will they be productive, will they won't? What about their suffering through life? And I'd like you to respond to that uh, if you can. Uh, thanks, Rosemary. <clears throat> um, the right to die movement is, is um, not concerning themselves at the present time, as far as I know, uh, with anybody who's not an adult and who uh, is not able to make their own decisions. So for, for children uh, or, and teenagers in, in the situation that you, you uh, painted, um, uh, it's, it isn't going to change unless somebody um, actively uh, um, asks for that change. So, so the treatment of kids is, uh, is, is not within this, um, the, the scope that we're looking at at the present time. Sure. Yes, uh, <clears throat> the right to die... Uh, I agree with, and you having the power thereof. But a child who's 200 grams at birth, and they're going to have pain and agony. And I parallel that with an older person, an adult, who also has a disease and wishes to exit life to their final destination. I see a parallel there. And it seems to me if this is only for the coherent, lucid adult, who has the strength to take the final lethal dose, they're okay. But I think this is going to wedge open the utilitarian ethic. You have a right, and you may not have a right. Or, or we're not going to address the technology advances to keep a, a fetus that is alive, just breathing, and yet the outcome of their life is very negative, full of pain. Pain at the end, pain at the beginning. So I see them belonging to one another. I know that you've separated it, but I do see the question, the big question being pain and agony. And physicians, they, their oath is to do no harm. But what about the mental harm, physical harm, emotional harm? It's the same at the beginning and the end. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. But I, <clears throat> but I think... Um, you know, we have changed the laws in many instances over the last hundred years, uh, you know, from the point of view of abolition of capital punishment, the uh, legalization of abortion and, and all that. And maybe this is a progressive step that we'll be talking about 50 years from now. Ed Bardock, you mentioned <coughs> Europe, and I believe you mentioned Oregon, Washington, and Montana. 
You didn't give any figures. How many people have uh, utilized this feature in North America? Well, <clears throat> I do know about um, uh, Washington, um, and I and in the in the first, I think it was the first fourteen years. There were, I think, 411 people that, that took advantage of this uh, system. And that came down to, um, I think, two people in 10,000, uh, so two people in two deaths in 10,000 deaths were attributable, attributable to medically assisted suicide. But what, so there's, in, in Oregon, there's four, basically 400 people over 10 years. Thank you, John. I'm Mary Shillington. I appreciated your putting this out in the open. As a retired uh, grief counselor at Lethbridge Family Services, I'm, I met with lots of people but who did not talk about the end of life and people who didn't even have a will. Uh, if the, so for me, it seems that this kind of conversation, if it gets us talking about something that's going to happen to all of us, the death, this is in itself a, a positive thing. And, and, and if we think about it, each of us here, then we can do d things differently with our families. How do we continue that discussion within uh, you know, society so that we can be more open and talking and facing our fears about death? Well, uh, uh, thanks. Um, don't get me started about not having a will. Because um, <laughs> we could be here a long time. Uh, so as an old financial planner from a way back, um, I always insisted that my clients have a will and a personal directive and an enduring power of attorney. And if you haven't got one, uh, get one, um, you know, by four o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> because they are essential. They're essential for you. <laughs> Mr. Nightingale, I hope you're paying attention. Um, <laughs> um, they are essential, not only for you, but for your family. Because if you don't have a personal directive and, you, and you're in the hospital and nobody knows how you want to be treated, then they'll treat you how they think they'll treat you in the hospital. So you must have a personal directive, and you must have an enduring power of attorney so that if you get um, unable to make financial decisions, there's somebody who can do that for you. And, of course, you must have a will to distribute your assets when you die. Uh, I think, Mary, that I think we have to have more forums like this and discuss it. I, it, it blows my mind that our culture doesn't talk about death. I mean, it's it's a journey. You know, you're born, you live, you die. It's it's like tree, you know, uh, leaves falling off a tree. It's fall. It's it's the winter time. They're going to die, and, and so are we. It ain't rocket science and stuff. And <clears throat> and the other thing is that other cultures do. There's a, um, a celebration was held in uh, in. Um, the Japanese gardens in July, where the Japanese celebrated uh, their ancestors. If you go down to Mexico on the 1st of November, they have the Day of the Dead. It's a blast. The people <laughs> take picnics and they take their vodka and they take their um, guitars and they go to the, the um, cemetery and they sit around the, the graves of their grandfathers and grandmothers and they live it up and they remember them and they have a great time. Death happens. I don't know what, where, why we have this mental block. It makes no sense. But don't think I'm passionate about this because I, I really don't care. 
John No Will Nightingale. Thanks, John. I, I think you it was a very eloquent presentation about a very sensitive subject. Um, I would just like to make a comment about the lady who was making a comparison with premature babies. Um, in my humble opinion, we're really comparing apples and oranges uh, between the beginning of life and the end of life. And I would just like to say that the, in this day and age with medical science, the majority of premature babies go on to lead full, active lives free of pain. So I, I do not think that you can compare the two. Having said that, I, I also wondered, John, whether you had any reference material links that you might share with the audience that, uh, who wish to take this information or would like more information on this uh, subject. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, all you have to do is, um, is, is Google this stuff, and there's a pile of information out there. There are, there are two organizations that, um, in Canada that are, uh, have great websites. One is called, aptly enough, the Farewell Foundation, um, which is out of BC, and, uh, and they, uh, they have two objectives. They want this section of the criminal code um, uh, repealed, and then, uh, if that's successful, then they want to establish a hospice uh, in um, in Vancouver, uh, similar to the one in um, in Switzerland, where people, if they want to, if they uh, they want to, they can go to this hospice and uh, uh, and as assuming that they um, meet all the regulations, they can die there. Um, so that's that's the Farewell Foundation. The Dying with Dignity organization that I belong to um, does uh, basically two things. It educates people and it provides client support uh, to, um, uh, to their members. We educate the public on the need to have personal directives um, and we educate the public on their patient rights if they get into a hospital and on their uh, options at the end of life. <clears throat> And the other thing that we try to educate is our politicians, and we make presentations to um, uh, Senate committees, uh, parliamentary committees, to the courts. And so we're trying to generate the, the, uh, the knowledge out there that, that Mary Shillington was, uh, was talking about. And the other thing is um, the client support section of Dying with Dignity um, provides... Uh, counsel to people at the end of their lives. Many people phone Dying with Dignity and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to check out of this place. How do I do it? And so we send a person out to talk to them or they come in and we provide information um, about their various options, whether it's pain management or whether it's hospice or whether it's palliative care. And in some ways, we act as a... Um, as a suicide prevention service because when you know the options, you know what you can do. And some people say, oh, I didn't know about uh, one of these things, so I'll explore that. I'm not ready to take my life yet, so uh, that's, uh, that's one of the services. And the other service that uh, they offer is uh, at the end of life, if you go through all the exercises and you say, no, I'm done, I'm, I, uh, I want to die, then... Um, one of our people will uh, visit you, uh, give you all of the information on how to do it. They won't provide 
the materials. So basically there's two ways you can use helium and you can use drugs and they'll tell you where to get them. And if, if you want them to, uh, they'll sit by your bedside um, and, um, and hold your hand when you die and comfort your family. So that's, that's one of the, um, the, the services that Dying with Dignity offers. And so their website is dyingwithdignity.ca. Uh, the Farewell Foundation is the same thing, farewellfoundation.ca. Uh, there are a number of books and YouTube videos and podcasts, and I have a list of them outside, and, and my charming wife, Barbara, will be there. And, um, and if you want more information or you'd like to join Dying with Dignity, it costs you 50 bucks a year. It's a charitable deduction, so for the tax uh, people out there, you get a 40% tax break. It costs you $30 a year cash, right? That's a lunch at, you know, Moxie's or something. Uh, so it's worth it. You get all sorts of information and support when you need it. One last question. Um, Austin Fennell, thanks for coming and speaking to us today. Lots of important stuff in there. The way in which it touches my own case is that a cousin of mine in Calgary has given me enduring power of attorney and uh, uh, responsibility around personal directives. Now I love her very dearly. I also see the extent to which her health is declining. And because I talk to her often, I see that things are sure not getting any better. And she worries about this end-of-life stuff too. I think that one of the... Um, one of the other elements that we don't often want to bring up, because it's equally as divisive as what you brought up today, has to do with religious convictions. So I will ask you, do you believe in the providence of God? Providence of God means that there are ways in which God is actively involved in every life with a compassionate sense. And I believe that in that, we should speak about those who have chronic serious problems and wondering whether they should go on living and don't want to, we should speak very gently and with as much restraint on judgment as we can. But my question still is, do you believe in the providence of God? Well, before I answer that, um, I, I certainly believe in religious freedom. So if somebody wants to believe in the providence of God or in... Um, Ganesh or in any any other deity, um, I respect that uh, that belief. Do I believe in the providence of God? No, I don't. No, I'm a raging atheist. <laughs> I I could probably talk about that for a while too. <laughs> That's the last question. Thank you very much, John, and uh, thank you everyone for being here.